1: All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 504 for the week of Monday, January 28th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Thank you, Sawyer. Good evening. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, thanks. Glad we're back after that short week off. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman.
0: Hello oh, again and again and again. That gets me a one ahead.
1: <laughs> All right, so then we won't say hello to you for the next two episodes, deal? <laughs> All righty then, so let's get right into it. We've been gone for two weeks, and there's a bunch of news that we have to cover. And since we've been gone two weeks, what news are we going to cover? News from today's recording date. That's Monday, January 28th. And this one came as a shock. I was told by this by somebody who they're like, is this true? i had to look this up and i was a little shocked and i still do not know if it is true or not but iranian state television reported today that they had successfully put a monkey into space the flight reportedly had the monkey go 75 miles up and then splash back safely and alive to earth this is all according to iran's press tv and an article in the new york times Apparently, it was launched in a capsule codenamed Pishkum, which means Pioneer. And they did this because of the biological similarities between humans and monkeys, said director of the Iranian space agency Hamid Fazeli. Here's the thing. This is obviously a precursor to eventually sending humans into space, which they're planning to do within the next five to eight years. But there is pretty much no report anywhere of this launch from NORAD, or any of the other Western tracking agencies, nobody has confirmed or denied this story, and we are only hearing this from Iranian state television. Now, in the past, in 2011, they had unsuccessfully tried to launch Monkey into space, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that this launch actually happened?
2: From what I've I heard, too, sir, the, the launch, if it did happen, went about 72 miles up and came back down, uh, and Iranian sources are saying that the uh, monkey survived and everything's all good. Um, however, there's no real report from any, uh, any monitoring stations or anything like that saying that the launch actually occurred. I'm sure out of a, a nation-state like Iran... We've got eyes all over the place over there, and I'm sure that, you know, folks that are friendly to us in that region also have eyes all over the place over there, and I'm sure everybody, um, with a missile launch out of Iran, everybody would have gone on, like, high alert, so there's no indication, at least from the press anyway, that that occurred, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, did this really happen or not, and, and with Iran, it's always tough, because you never, you can't, sometimes because of their propensity for not playing it straight, you just don't know. So, did this happen? I don't know. Um, I'd like to think so. But, you know, if it did happen, I think tonight the world is a less safer place. Uh their space program has also been tied into their nuclear development program, and if you have a, you know, a, a rocket or a vehicle that's capable of going suborbital, orbital, never mind orbital, you still have a pretty good capability of hitting, you know, some pretty good close targets with a possible nuclear device. And Iran is not exactly the kind of nation state that you want with a nuclear weapon. So, in in my eyes. If this really did happen, I really think the world is a less safer place to mine
1: Right. Obviously, one of the major concerns that many people are asking is, you know, A, was this actually a launch that had a monkey in it? B, did it actually launch? And C, was this not a test of their nuclear rocket capabilities? Because that's obviously one of the major concerns is that... They've been a threat in the past with their nuclear program, and many are concerned that this may be related to it. However, the agency has been repeatedly saying that it is in no way related to that, and they are trying to do this only out of peace. But this was one thing that I found in the New York Times article from today that was really shocking to me, is that you mentioned that nobody around the area, all of our allies, could find nothing on the launch. And according to the article, it says... Quote, Western space experts could give no confirmation of the report, which press TV called evidence of yet another Iranian achievement in launching animals into space. So, because the West couldn't find out, that's an achievement of them launching a monkey into space?
2: Well, the idea is that, well, the West is saying, well you know prove it to us and and or they're saying well we can't say anything and so they're saying oh well you see the west is is just saying that they you know they they didn't see it so congratulations it happened and i'm like i'm like yeah that that's that's great logic um i'm I, again I, I i'm not sure what the motivations are here i'm not sure why they're keeping it you know on the up and up. I don't know if any, why they're not keeping it on the up and up. I don't know why you don't have somebody just coming out and saying, Hey, here's a picture of the launch. Here's a picture of the picture of the monkey being slid into the capsule and all this. I mean, if you look back, even we had good photographs of, of Latka and, and all of that. I mean, there has been film of the monkey sort of in its, its harness, but I have not seen it being slipped into a capsule and, and, and shot off. So, you know, again, I'm I'm on the fence on this one. Did it happen? I'm sixty forty against.
1: Right, they do have a picture of the monkey strapped in, as you mentioned, and in the past they have reportedly launched a mouse, a turtle, and worms, which we covered years ago on the show. But I have to go with you on this one. I'm more on the side of it not happening. But if it did happen, honestly, I would be a mix of a. A little bit excited because that means that we have another person eventually getting into the manned space flight game. B, scared, again, because of their nuclear program and some of their not-so-pleasant past. And C, jealous and, you know, even more saddened the fact that they can probably launch living things into space and we can't. But that's a whole other story.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that point later. But again, Sawyer, too, to just kind of throw a little bit more droplets on the story— over the weekend, they were announcing that they've actually fabricated a a spacesuit for a potential human pilot to wear, and there were some photographs of that. I mean, I, I think I fired that out on Twitter a while back ago. But um, so they are trying to at least perpetuate the idea that they have a piloted space program going on. I still think it's a smoke screen for nuclear te- for the nuclear testing capability, but I don't know. Again, um, and again, to to look at what you were saying, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to have another partner or another, another, another player on the field, so to speak. But, you know, is it really, really another player on the field, or is this really just a smokescreen hiding their nuclear capability? Who knows?
1: Well, this is obviously a story to keep an eye on, and we will update if we have any confirmation or lack thereof on the show and possibly on our Twitter account as well, which is at Talking Space. So be sure to follow that and keep updated, too. Alrighty righty, then. So for this one, we are going to go to Gene for a little private rock party. Yeah, sort of. This falls under the heading of while you were
2: out. Uh, while we were away last week, an interesting announcement uh, happened. Um, it looks like there's another player on the field with reference to asteroid mining. Now, last year... Uh, a company that was organized by uh, Peter Diamantis of uh, of, X, of the of the X Prize fame and of uh, Singularity University and, and ISU and all that, uh, and um, Eric Anderson, formerly of Space Adventures, they launched a uh, a company called Planetary Resources. Uh, I was there at the National Space Society's uh, uh, conference in Washington D.C. when they announced that. Um, Again, the idea is to go ahead and try to go ahead and harness the, uh, the resources of, of nearby asteroids. I mean, there are a, there is a lot of money to be made out there if you could go ahead and bring some of these resources back over to Earth. Um, there's a new player on the field now. There is a company that was started uh, by Rick Tomlinson. Uh, called, uh, deep space industries. And a mutual friend of the program is also involved in this one. Jeff Notkin from, uh, meteorite Man fame, um, is on the board on this one. Uh, but the idea too, is to launch these small little probes, if you will, called the fireflies to sort of scout out nearby asteroids and see what's out there and see which one would be, you know, ripe for the picking. And, uh, and then uh, go ahead and try to harness the uh, the minerals that are out there. This, as Rick once had said during the press conference, this means that now this is this is an industry with two players on the field rather than just one. Um, you know, but but the question that that comes to my mind is: is this going to be cost effective? Now, there's now again we're aiming for a launch. Of all these little firefly explore, explorers around 2015, and they'll be sent out to a journey to the asteroids, which could take anywhere between, um, according to some sources, two to six months. Um, they'll be equipped with you know, telescopes and remote sensing capabilities to go ahead and find out if there's anything out there and select the target that looks kind of good, and then zero in on that. Well, the problem I have is this: is uh, on this whole thing is return on investment. Now they are a startup, they are looking for investors. Both Planetary Resources and uh, Deep Space Industries both have a lot of star power behind them. Both have a lot of you know big names behind them, and so on. But as an investor, if I am you know, if say I'm I'm a I've got more money than Warren Buffett, say, and I'm looking back at this and saying, all right, when do I get my money back? Well, I, I kind of wonder about that one, and. Um, uh, there's an article by a uh, unlikely source, uh, oilprice.com, uh, that was uh, uh, put out a while back ago, and they were saying that, well, why this means that space mining won't work, and they're saying that energy return on energy invested is very, and I'm going to quote them here, is very, very far deep into the red given the likely quantity of an asteroid material to be recovered. Um, hence, the, the case for a viable industry on this basis is really not compelling. Now, the other thing, too, is platinum is about, according to the articles, about $1,600 an ounce um, here on Earth, and it costs that much to go ahead and pull it out of the ground and so on. Up in space, how much is it going to cost to go ahead and pull that out of an asteroid? And unless certain technologies really, really come about, um, <laughs> it, 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 you can already see the problem. You know, is it going to be cost effective to pull this money out and to pull all these minerals out of there? Oh, good Lord. Yes. There are riches out there to be taken. And and, you know, if, if you can figure out a cost effective way of mining an asteroid, man, you are going to be filthy rich. But if, you can't do it in a cost-effective manner. You know, it, it can is it possible? To, is it possible to do that? That's that's the question I have, and that's the question I'm going to throw at both of these guys, both planetary resources and deep space industries. Can you do it in a cost-effective manner? And I, I, I'm
1: I'm on the fence on this one, guys. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I don't. Really, no. I mean, I I think it's interesting now that there is more players in the game, and I think that means that at this point now we have a chance to see more within a quicker time period because competition usually means a lot more innovation and a lot more, you know, motivation to try and be the first. So I I think that's going to be helpful in that case. Otherwise, as you're mentioning, a lot of it comes down to the feasibility of it. Because, I mean, last episode we were talking a lot about, you know, the different possibilities of asteroids and, you know, lassoing them into Earth orbit and some other bizarre and crazy ideas. But these ideas will eventually be plausible. And I have a feeling at this point we just don't have the technology. But I have a feeling that companies like these will eventually be the pioneers of the new technologies to make this cheaper.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, sorry, you kind of touched on what I was what I was going to say say next. Uh, NASA is actually looking into the idea of lassoing an asteroid and possibly turning it into a moon of our own moon um, for either you know, scientific study or even exploitation. If you could do that, and you figure out a do, way to do that safely, uh, it opens up the possibilities of maybe. Using these resources, not back here on Earth, but out there in space, and kind of, you know, having your own, uh, you know, your own fabrication area, you know, where you're, you're making minerals right there, you know, in, in orbit, rather than, you know, taking them back down to Earth. So that kind of opens up the door to something else, and if you decide too, that maybe if you are going to pull a couple asteroids around the moon, you can go over there mine those asteroids have your you know your uh, uh, refinery if you will uh, on the lunar surface, and make all your materials there and launch your your build your spacecraft right there on the moon so there are possibilities and, and i 'm saying i 'm not saying the feasibility of this is is, is nil but I'm kind of wondering from a practical standpoint as an investor when do I get my money back? And that answer's still not out there yet.
1: I have to agree if I was one of them I might not buy into it yet, you know, give it another 5 years or so when they start proving themselves then, you know, I'll I think it'll be worth looking into. But for now, I think we're going to have to see how these grow. Yep, totally agree with you on that one. Alrighty then, so that brings us to the end of our first trip around the table, and we're ready to begin our second trip. And it starts off with me once again. So, what's my second story this time? Well, it involves a place that I like to call a second home of mine, and that is the Intrepid Sierra Space Museum. As you might have heard, and we mentioned on this show, after Superstorm Sandy came and affected the East Coast... One item that was affected was the Space Shuttle Enterprise, located on the flight deck of the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum. The inflatable dome which it was housed in deflated, causing damage to the orbiter. Because of that, obviously the exhibit had to close, and they are currently in the works of building a new housing for it, but in the meantime, they have opened a temporary exhibit, taking a look at the history of Enterprise from the 1970s to today. And this actually includes some unique, never-before-seen artifacts, such as helmets and some things from inside the cockpit of the shuttle, and pictures. But these aren't just any ordinary pictures. These are pictures from people like you, and they're still looking for more. Yes, you're right, the Intrepid is crowdsourcing pictures, so they are saying that if you have any picture of the Space Shuttle Enterprise, whether it be in New York City, Washington, D.C., Edwards Air Force Base out in California, anywhere you have seen it, they want you to send in the pictures. If you would like, you can tweet your picture of Enterprise with the hashtag Intrepid Shuttle, and there is also a website which you can do on the Intrepid's website, which is intrepidmuseum.org, and you can submit it there, and the link to that will also be in the show notes.
2: I'm I'm just curious why they're 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 is it just sort of to uh, just sort of trying to say that you know this exhibit is yours too and this is sort of a an idea to say hey if if you've seen our, our if you've seen our our new baby here you know give us our give us the baby pictures and 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 let's display them is, is that the idea or just to go ahead and and give uh, folks a I guess I guess ownership really like to make make them kind of feel like like this is their exhibit.
1: I think it's just a new, unique, you know, take on the idea of pictures because most people you see these pictures, they're the professional photographers who took them, and they're all fancy and lined up perfectly, but. There's just something about flipping through a hashtag on Instagram or Twitter and seeing all the pictures and that just makes you smile and go this is something for everyone and I think that's part of the idea. I mean on their website it says uh part of this exhibit is the one of a kind crowdsourced display of photographs and we want shuttle fans from everywhere and every era to be a part of it.
2: Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm thinking of, of about maybe, you know, about five dozen photographs I took of the bird when she was sitting on the tarmac uh, waiting for, uh, you know, she got pulled out and, and uh, she was waiting for discovery. And then uh, uh, she was uh, sort of sitting off in the back waiting for uh, discovery to kind of sort of take, take her place, if, if you will. And then uh, enterprise was going to get towed over to, uh, uh, to the airport and then uh, off to New York. She was going to go. So, uh, I've got about maybe at least you know fifteen of those <laughs> photographs of the of her just kind of sort of sitting there going, uh, you know, okay, you know, I'm I'm getting kicked out, but I guess I'm going somewhere new, and um and that's that, and um uh, so you know I'll I might uh, chuck a couple of pictures their way, and and hopefully uh, when I'm over there with uh, with family, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and take a look at that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I know I'll be submitting my pictures because I had a little, you know, access to get some great shots. And along with that, I must always include with this story that I am a consultant for the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum, just so everybody knows I am open about everything that I say. So once again, the link to that will be in the show notes if you want to submit your pictures. Alrighty then, so... We're moving on to our next story, and this one involves the ever fun history of the space launch system. Right, Dean? <sighs> well, sort of. It, it's it's actually
2: uh, a an editorial that appeared in the Wall Street Journal that kind of you know set off a, a little bit of a powder keg over in oddly enough in Alabama. Uh, this editorial was written by uh, Robert Walker and Charles Miller, uh, two individuals I'm sort of familiar with, familiar with if, if you're a uh, member of the National Space Society. And it basically goes through the history of the Commercial Crew Program initially, uh, saying that during you know President Obama's first first term, he set out to go ahead and and try to set NASA on a different course than before. And sort of redefine its relationship with uh, private industry. And uh, it kind of goes through the entire history, if you will, of the entire you know commercial endeavor here. Uh, its roots it, it writes um, uh, goes to uh, 1982 when uh, then President Ronald Reagan announced a new national policy of, of supporting spaceflight. And, uh, and exploration, which kind of created the Office of Commercial Space Transportation. And the whole purpose of that was to try to go ahead and uh, kind of smooth the regulatory uh, gravel, if you will, uh, on commercial launch vehicles. Uh, the, next, the next thing uh, in 2004 was uh, President uh, George W. Bush who created the commercial crew and cargo program? Now that's often credited to President Obama, but um, rest assured, it was uh, it was Bush Bush forty three that uh, that created that office. And essentially, this was supposed to be a Plan C, where industry and and uh, is going to get together and create vehicles to send cargo to the International Space Station, and of course eventually crew uh so then this way they could take over that whole thing and allow nasa to go ahead and do all the heavy lifting in the exploration area uh which was project constellation well uh president obama comes in and in 2010 goes ahead and and kills constellation constellation with all due respect did have some budgetary issues and with all due respect to uh to president uh george w bush He did not give it a lot of support and a lot of oomph that it really, really needed to succeed. So, yeah, I I guess killing it was sort of a mercy killing. But what President Obama basically did was put us on course, took this plan C that George W. Bush had and made it plan A. So uh, basically saying that commercial industry could do this better and cheaper and faster than anything – And that's essentially what this article is is basically saying. The complaint that they have here uh, that both uh, Charles Miller and uh, Robert Walker make is the fact that NASA has not successfully developed any new booster in the past 30 years. Well, with all due respect, NASA was not directed to do that by the White House or by Congress. So to go ahead and, and say, well, you know, you know, NASA's been sort of resting on its laurels, I think is a little, <laughs> I don't know, I think is a little um, harsh and probably uh, incorrect. They go ahead and, and continue to say that the full privatization of U.S. space trans- transportation will bring two benefits. One, you know, to recapture global leadership in commercial space, to quote, And the second thing is to go ahead and lower costs and do a much better job. So they essentially make the case here uh, to basically kill the SLS. There was another article today on uh, AL.com or Alabama.com questioning this article here. And... They leave you with the whole thing that's saying, like when uh, President Obama killed Constellation, several thousand individuals were laid off. So you know, basically, this was was you know they're they're making the the point that yeah, this was an economic you know catastrophe killing Constellation. They also raise the interesting question: Is this simply a trial balloon? From the White House, meaning Walker and, and Charles Miller, launching this thing, saying, all right, maybe it's a good idea to kill SLS, or are they really intent on redirecting NASA? I'm all for the right tool for the right job. Is SLS the right tool for the right job? Well, SLS, you know, like it or not, has got a much more heavy, heavier lift capacity than Falcon Heavy does you'd probably have to have maybe two Falcon heavy launches to do with what uh, SLS can do with one. Do you direct industry to go ahead and build an SLS and say, this is what we want, which is essentially what NASA's doing. Or do you turn the whole thing over to commercial entities and just have NASA in some sort of saying, okay, we want to do exploration, but, and, and we're just going to leverage the tools that these guys give us. And that's it. Um, I have a funny feeling, though. Are we just still going to be talking about SLS in 2015, 2016? I'm not sure. Um, I think SLS, as I said, has got a huge you know, bullseye on it because no mission for it has been defined. And there's got to be a, you know, a reason for this thing to be. And I think maybe that's what, uh, what uh, Robert Walker and Charles Miller are also saying. What do you guys guys think of this whole thing you know it, it, I'm going to open up a can of worms here and say, should the u s keep going you know just keep trucking along with the commercial stuff, the heck with the s l s the heck with Orion and just keep trucking with all of this? should it be you know where should we go back to the other you know dare I say this, the other paradigm and basically say that government does the exploration and let private industry go ahead and exploit l e o or low earth orbit or should it be a cooperative between the two? I'm of the opinion that it should be a cooperative between the two.
1: I do agree it should be cooperative, but one of the suggestions you were saying earlier was, you know, for SLS to completely, you know, be gotten rid of and then NASA have no human spaceflight purpose pretty much at this point. You know, I, I don't think that's the way to go. Do they have much of an option at this point of where they're going or do do they have any idea at this point where they're going? <laughs> Not really, but at least they have the option if they have a craft.
2: Yeah, that, that's a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Sawyer. right now, um, you know, we are building these wonderful tools to go ahead and do some things. The idea, though, is we don't have those things defined, and that's what frightens me a little bit about with with SLS's future. Again, I, I'm still saying that commercial has a place. It's good to go ahead. Turn over low Earth orbit to commercial enterprise. Let them try to go ahead and see if they can make some money at this. Let them try to see if they can open up some new, you know, new markets and so on. I mean, there's, there's, you know, Bigelow with their inflatable that is going to be tested on, on, on the ISS in the not not too distant future. They've got the possibilities of lofting labs up there. Yeah, uh, Sierra Nevada's uh, Dream Chaser, uh, SpaceX's Dragon. Um, the, the CST 100, they can all support support those, those laboratories once ISS is out of the picture, or they might be able to go ahead and do other things. But Orion is built for, for deep space exploration. So is apparently SLS. Can they go ahead, these, these things go ahead and support deep space exploration?
1: I don't know. I guess only time will tell. Fingers crossed. Alrighty then. Of course, there's one person we haven't heard yet from, and he's usually my favorite to hear from. My apologies, Gene. But, Mark, what do you have for us? Time to go back
0: to outer space. Of course, the the other teaser would be robots. So let's talk about NASA's RRM, Robotic Refueling Mission. They've accomplished some very spectacular things in the last week and a half, two weeks, and I'm going to give you a quick rundown on it and also give you a couple of things that you might want to check out on your own that'll give you a much deeper and a much, uh, you know, better idea of exactly how RRM works. Now, RRM, of course, Robotic refueling Mission, it was launched on STS-135, placed on the ISS, and in that... uh, What are we looking at, a year and a half now, I guess, that it's been on on orbit? They've accomplished several tests and several, many, many hours of practice on the ground in getting ready for what they did recently. Now, what they've done is they've actually refueled a satellite. Of course, this is all in a pretend scenario. The RRM apparatus is about the size of a washing machine, they're using assets on the ISS in combination with the RRM chassis and tools to simulate actually refueling a satellite. Now what they're using is Dexter, which is quite a complex device as I look more into the Canadian Space Agency's page for Dexter and also Canadarm2. Now Canadarm2 is 17 meters long and they're putting Dexter on the end of Canadarm2 and then they're reaching over to the RRM payload and they're doing different tasks like taking a tool out of a storage place uh... in the last uh, since january fourteenth they had six days of operations and i'll give you a quick rundown they grabbed a tool from storage it was mounted on the end of Dexter and this is all robotically there's no astronauts outside this is all controlled from the ground they cut a surf- safety wire on a tertiary cap. Using Dexter's other arm, they grasped and stowed another tool and used it to remove the cap that was freed. The next day, they stowed the cap in a receptacle. Then they paused because they had some software, uh, I guess you call it glitches or some, some things with software that concerned them that they wanted to run through. On day three, they resumed. They cut a safety wire. They cut a second safety wire. And if you think about cutting a wire with a tool, At the end of a 17-meter arm with another robot at the end of that, when everything is guided by preset commands, that's all some pretty fine operations. Day four, which was January 22nd, they grabbed a safety cap tool. They unstowed it. They checked out the receptacle where that cap would be stowed when it was removed. They removed the safety cap. They stowed the safety cap tool. Day five. Dexter used one of his arms to grab onto a nearby fixture for stability. They grabbed a nozzle tool out of storage, prepared for the actual refueling, and on day six, they opened an actuation nut. They fueled the RRM module. They released the nozzle, leaving behind, and I think this is kind of cool, they left behind a quick disconnect adapter. So this simulates that they can go to a satellite that's not made to be serviced on orbit. It's made to be serviced on the ground, on the launch pad, where they're fueling a satellite just prior to launch. They're closing. They're, they're, they're putting fuel in. They're closing a the fuel valve. They're safety wiring it. They're putting a cap over that. They're safety wiring that. And in some cases, they're going to have insulation and blankets to remove, and those will be things that will be tested later on that they don't have dates set for. So it's all real complex. It's all very interesting to me. And seeing the hardware at a uh, prior to launch on STS-135 and hearing the briefing and uh, from Benjamin Reed and hearing him talk about it and explain how it worked. Now, I want to make reference to quite a few interesting things. There was a Google Plus Hangout. And the participants in it was Benjamin Reed and also about six other individuals from the Satellite Servicing Capabilities Office, or the SSCO. You're going to be hearing more and more about that group in the future. And they have their roots. And you think, think they may have had something to do with the Hubble Telescope Servicing Missions? They did. They're the ones that developed the ways for the astronauts to do things on orbit. They developed tools. They developed procedures. Well, some of these same people are part of RRM. And essentially what they did was they found a way to substitute for an astronaut using tools that in some cases with RRM they had to invent. So I want to give you as I've, – I've probably said enough, to hopefully, to whet your appetite. If you want to take a look at the RRM hangout that the team did from that office – We'll have a link for that. and You can watch it Lasts about, uh, gee, it seems like it's 45, 50 minutes. I forget exactly. This Satellite Servicing Office is on Twitter at NASA underscore SATSERV, N-A-S-A underscore S-A-T-S-E-R-V. And um, I really like the tweet that I saw 24th of January where they said, robotic refueling, mission accomplished, RRM and Dexter, dynamic duo, stay tuned, robotic technology coming to a satellite near you. They did a phenomenal job. I sent them thanks, and they answered back and said, stay tuned for more exciting work. So I think we're going to see a lot of really interesting things there, and uh, hope you'll take the time to watch that Google Plus Hangout. And I think you'll get a better appreciation of how they got their start with Hubble.
2: The other thing, too... Uh, that's kind of neat with uh, uh, RRM is, again, dare I mention it, the infamous topic of uh, uh, orbital debris. And this will help, in a way, mitigate the, that by giving a lot of you know, satellites that would otherwise be derelict a chance at life. Uh, and industry is going to go ahead and take what NASA's doing in this, and hopefully run with the ball. You're going to open up a whole new uh, avenue of of things to to do up there with with this tool, uh, because now you've you started. You're going to be igniting a whole industry where a company could start up saying, "Hey, we want to go ahead and refuel satellites." Well, how do we do it? NASA will come along, said, "Okay, this is what we've done. Um, these are the technologies we've used." If you want to go ahead and refine stuff, go right on ahead. So again, this is NASA's uh, way of sort of also spurring off new uh, a new commercial opportunity. Mark, thanks a whole bunch. This is really neat stuff.
0: Yeah, and just a quick mention: uh, this was really quite a team that's that's accomplishing this mission. It's uh, folks at Goddard Space Flight Center. It's people in Huntsville. Part of their role is actually commanding the fuel transfer. When they have the connection, they actually, they turn on the pumps inside the RRM um, equipment to actually pump gas. Folks at Johnson Space Center, and of course, it wouldn't be able to do this without a lot of uh, back and forth between them and the folks with the Canadian Space Agency and Ketit Arm 2 and Dexter. So it's a big team that put this together, and apparently their success has been very good. There's going to be another video that they'll come out with that'll actually show when the uh, nozzle tool disconnects off of the fixture, and they have a, uh, a small spray, which from what I read is, is what they expected, but there'll be a small spray of glycol, which was the um, simulated propellant that they used in this. So there'll be more to come, and there's going to be more in 2013, but this was quite a, a major accomplishment, and that's pretty much it for right now.
1: That's pretty much it. That's quite a lot of amazing information. Thank you, Mark.
2: (laughs) Hey, man, that that is some cool stuff, Mark. Thanks.
1: Alrighty then. So, at this point, we have made it to our final trip around the table. And this one's going to be slightly more somber. But, nonetheless, we think that this will be interesting. So, I will start off this third trip around the table and this is an incident that many people have not heard about most people have heard about most of the nasa disasters most people have heard about the russian space disasters at least those that they have made public but not many people know about one that happened in a very secluded part of china this was back in february of 1996 And it was the launch of a satellite called IntelSat-708. It was a $56 million contract that IntelSat had for a launch on China's still untested at the time Long March 3B rocket. Now, this is an article that was posted on the Air and Space Magazine website. And it's interesting hearing one person's recount that they finally were able to and allowed to tell of them actually going to see the launch. They talked about going through all these back roads and seeing all these people, all of these onlookers from the local village at the gates going to watch. They talked about going inside of the control room to watch, and then just as it was about to launch, they postponed it. They postponed it again for a couple of minutes for no apparent reason, actually, which it then launched. They ran out onto the roof to watch it, and as they did so, they watched it go straight up then straight horizontal, and crash in an extremely violent and bright explosion, to which was a color that they said they could not even describe. The thing was, they were then held inside, apparently for safety reasons, for a couple of hours, until they were able to go out and actually see the extent of the damage, which was large, that included their hotels, and almost entirely decimated the small village that lived nearby. Chinese officials said six were dead, but the actual number is unknown, and that is why this is called one of history's worst launch accidents that nobody has ever heard about. Swear, let me get this straight. They, the village was almost taken out? In, 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 in Not almost. Was.
2: Oh my God. How many, how many, um, do we know fatalities, you know, injuries? What? I mean,. Has has anything been been you know dug in as far as that that's concerned? It's like my my wow I'm I'm flabbergasted.
1: As it says in this article quote: Two weeks after the accident, Jinghua China's official news agency reported that the Intel Sat seven o eight accident had left six dead and fifty seven injured. That in fact might be a realistic number for the casualties among the technical personnel involved in preparing the mission. We may never know how many local villagers died, although the numbers could easily have run into the hundreds. Oh,
2: my. Oh, wow. And, and China has not, has, have they officially acknowledged this, or that this actually happened, or they just said, well, yeah. It happened. They I said
1: mean, that uh, the cause of the accident was traced to the rocket's flight control system, but not before a military official on the Chinese launch team tried to shift the blame elsewhere. <laughs>
2: Wow it's just I mean they, they, and and nobody really knows for sure how many people on the ground I mean they know about the technicians but you know the 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 the, the civilian population nobody really knows how, how many individuals were were taken out
1: well this person mentioned that they had returned back to the site for other launches and the village was completely was at this point pretty much completely gone and completely uninhabited wow. but As he said, he had no idea what happened to the fate of the people who were sitting just outside the gate to watch it. It was reportedly, according to the Chinese officials, said that it was moved, that most of the people were moved, although they doubt that, as well as the fact that they were held in a bunker for five or six hours. They assumed while the military went out and picked up most of the bodies.
2: Oh, wow. And this is, you know, this is this is tragedy beyond, you know, comprehension.
1: How? Video of the launch and of the village afterwards from one of their camcorders is on YouTube if you search for IntelSat 708. But it's it's sad to look at, and it's amazing how pretty much nobody knows of this. I read this. I had no idea of it. Even you, you might have heard of it, but you had no idea the extent of it. Yeah, I, I, I knew a little bit about it. I knew that the, the booster failed, but I didn't know... You
2: know that that there was, you know, for lack of a better phrase, and I hate to phrase it this way, how extensive the collateral damage was, um, and and that that this thing took out, you know, an entire village. I mean, that's that's just incomprehensible. Wow.
1: Yeah, many more launches occurred safely, but this is one that people try to forget, but. Once they finally lifted the ban on the secrecy of it, one person spoke out. There are actually – there is a quote in here from somebody else who still to this point was not allowed to actually state their name. But thankfully the person who actually wrote this was able to speak out and say, okay, here's what actually happened. Most people don't know about this, and I'm honestly really glad he brought this to the public.
2: Yeah, I am too, and you have the courage to
1: do it. Um, just Wow. Indeed, this was one of the best articles I have read in a long time, and I read too many articles for this show. But I am going to, without a doubt, post this as a link in the show notes, and I highly, highly recommend giving this a read. It is fascinating, exhilarating, and scary all at the same time. Unfortunately, we're not going to be switching to anything any happier, but something that we, of course, have been recognizing for the last three, now four years, and we must at this time recognize once again, and that is NASA's Remembrance Week. Gene?
2: Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. Um, As folks may or may not be aware of, or the folks that do listen to this program for, uh, or have been listening to this program for any length of time do know, uh, the week beginning uh, January 27th and ending February 1st is sort of a, uh, a solemn, solemn period in, uh, in spaceflight because we recognize the, the loss of, uh, of three crews. Uh, first, uh, January 27th, 1967, uh, the loss of the Apollo 1 prime crew, uh, Virgil I. Grissom, Edward H. White, and Roger Chaffee. Uh, Grissom being one of the first original Mercury astronauts. uh, Also a pilot of uh, Gemini 3, a command pilot of of the second uh, human flight in Project Mercury, Liberty Bell 7. Uh, Accomplished engineer, brilliant guy. Um, Edward H. White, the typical boy boy next door, um, a tall athletic, um, very personable, uh, and literally the, um, cut from the same cloth as John Glenn. Uh, he, his claim to fame was, uh, the pilot on, uh, Gemini four, and he was the first American to go EVA. Uh, and uh, then, uh, Roger Chaffee, the, uh, the pilot on Apollo one, this guy is, uh, uh, not really well known, and it's a darn shame because every time I go to read something about Roger Chaffee, I find something new that makes me wish I would have met him. Um, this is a guy that would go, that went out to the Grumman plant where they were building the LM, and made every technician feel like that they were the most important people in the program. And when Chaffee was asked, uh, "Well, do you want to meet the guys that make the tools that make the spacecraft?" He said, "Sure, fine," and went ahead and talked to these tool and die makers and made them feel like they were the most important people in on on Apollo. So, you know, this is a guy that was just absolutely magnificent. Um, The uh, also then uh, today, as we record this, on January twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. And this is the one probably a lot of a lot of folks uh, do recall uh, the loss of uh, Space Shuttle Challenger on STS-51L. Its mission was to essentially deliver what we're going to be delivering uh, sometime this in in the coming weeks a uh, uh, or coming days. I'm sorry, a uh, tracking data relay satellite. Um, that was the primary mission for for Challenger that day. Um, its other mission was to go ahead and take readings of the uh, of, uh, comet Halley that was passing by uh, using a free-floating spacecraft. Uh, that was going to be Ron McNair's job. Um, but, uh, of course, uh, this was going to be the, uh, the teacher in space program's uh, big bow, and uh, uh, Sharon Chris McAuliffe was, was also on board, and she was uh, the... The, uh, the teacher in space that was uh, going to go ahead and give uh, kids the ultimate field trip. And unfortunately, that lesson had to wait until Barbara Morgan on STS-118. Uh, and then, of course, um, the crew of STS-107. That sort of put us on the track that we are on right now. Because I have a feeling that it, had we not lost Columbia that day, on February 1st, that horrible morning around nine o'clock as she was coming home, uh, I think we still probably would have been flying shuttle right now. Uh, I think the loss of Columbia kind of put us on the road that we're on now, which I'm not sure any of these folks would kind of approve of right now. I think sure that they would look back at the achievements of, of, uh, of SpaceX recently and say, yeah, way to go, guys. I think they would look fondly at the um, CST-100 under construction. I think also, too, they would look very fondly at the Dream Chaser. But as far as the current state of affairs, as far as where we're going right now, I'm not too sure they would be happy. Because right now, our exploration program doesn't know where it wants to go. And um, that's something that I think we're going to have to ask ourselves. If we really, really honor the memory of the crew of Apollo 1, the crew of Challenger, and the crew of Columbia. Let's give them the space program that they'd be really, really proud of. And in some instances, we have it. But in some instances, I think we're falling short. And to, to really, really honor their memory, let's continue on the, uh, on the goal that they would have wanted us to be on, which is reaching out into the solar system. And I don't see that at least in the human program right now. So again, I'll put it to the, to the rest of the team and then maybe to all of you who, uh, who want to go ahead and add uh, your, uh, your two cents in on this. What would, what would these guys say? What would, you know, Judy Resnick looking back at all this say about what's going on right now? I don't know. Um, I think all of them would have mixed feelings.
1: Working at a Challenger Center, which was created after the loss of the Challenger in 1986 on January 28th, you know, it's it's always great to be able to see the kids' face and to be able to continue the mission of the Challenger crew of inspiration as well as, more importantly, education. Now, we are definitely continuing Kristen McAuliffe and the entire crew's mission of education, but... I think it's really hard to continue the mission of inspiration when you can't say to a child, a rocket carrying people is going to be launching soon or saying to someone, you too can be an astronaut one day when, as of right now, we're not launching any of our own humans on a NASA rocket or going to the moon or anything crazy. You know, nothing that wants to inspire kids, it seems. So, honestly, as much as I love being able to continue that mission... If NASA doesn't, you know, come up with something that can re-spark that desire for kids to want to go into space and to re-inspire them, I think we failed them. Sir, I couldn't have put that better. And sometimes I'd, I
2: had a conversation. Um, somebody had noticed my, my lapel pin. I was at a, at a lunch uh, at my day job, and somebody noticed my lapel pin, and I was wearing the, uh, uh, the Apollo 1 Pin on my uh, on my jacket, and we got off into a very long conversation about where we're going in space right now. And Sawyer, I will I, I, honest engine. Nobody knew about the Orion. Nobody knew about the SLS. Everybody thought human space flight was essentially over because shuttle was over. And for some reason or other, NASA's message is not getting out there. Nobody knew. They knew about Elon Musk and they all thought that Musk was doing this on his own. Um, Little did they know that some of their tax dollars was going to to SpaceX uh, to develop all this stuff. Uh, I had to kind of set that record straight a little bit. But it was just, you know, nobody has that inkling. Everybody thinks it's over. And it's not over. It's not over by a long shot. But that seemed the environment we're in, kind of makes it feel that way and how how do you how do you combat that i don't know i i you know you just you try to go ahead and tell people that you know things are being developed things are in the pipeline but as you pointed out sawyer it's tough to get in front of people and saying well you know especially young kids and say you two could be doing this one day well okay i guess i could be going up to the iss and experiments and all that but in in, in, in a Russian rocket um, i don 't know if that that's <laughs> that gives me a lot of inspiration here for for my own place and for, for where i live you 're absolutely right and by the way hats off to the Challenger Center they do some wonderful work um, I, I was you know I, I started funding them when when I started throwing money no, I started throwing money at them when the whole thing started to started to blossoming in 86, and I I see what you guys do, and it's just magnificent, so bravo.
0: We're talking about the losses that we've seen in the space program. However, according to a website, which hopefully their stats are correct, they date it with today's date and time, total amount of time spent by humans in space is in excess of 111 man years total number of people who have been in earth orbit 525 and there's statistics for individuals with their longest individual duration in space and etc so uh, in some respects you might wonder how we got off so light in terms of loss of life
2: yeah mark you're absolutely correct Um, and you know those bad days are going to happen again, um, and the idea is to try to keep them to a minimum. These guys take risks; they know it. But we salute those who who have taken those risks and did it. As Ronald Reagan said in his speech to uh, uh, after the Challenger accident, they did it with joy, and uh, we commemorate their lives and we celebrate their lives and we celebrate the. The fact that without their sacrifices, we wouldn't have the things that we have today, you know, as far as tech- technology is concerned. But, again, um, will they be proud? Would they be proud of us? I think in some cases, yes. But in other cases, I think we've fallen short.
1: Well, of course, regardless of what they would think about where we are today, every time this week and all the time, we do think of them. And we thank them, the crew of Apollo 1. STS-51L and STS-107 for all that they did and making the ultimate sacrifice in the course of space exploration. And on that note, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here today. Thank you for joining us. Gene Mikalka.
2: Thanks, Sawyer. Uh, real quick, three things. Uh, I want to give uh, three quick shout-outs. One to uh, Peter Johnson over at the... Uh, uh, aviation Extended podcast in the UK. Uh, that's aviation extended.co.uk. Um, they uh, were gracious enough to, uh, for some reason, to ask me on. Uh, to talk a little bit about uh, spaceflight from a U.S. perspective and uh, I had a blast with them this, the conversation happened in uh, uh, late December, early January and again I, uh, it, I, it was a blast I believe that episode should be out either now or in the not too distant future so look out for it uh, another thing, uh, Scott Maxwell a great friend of this program um, this has announced that he is leaving his position as uh, one of the rover drivers uh, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I want to wish Scott a uh, uh, in whatever he he decides to do in chapter with his with the next chapter, all the best. He's a he's a great stand-up guy and really really exemplified everything that was noble about uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So, uh, great are a great guy, and and good luck to you. Um, and a condolence message out to uh, Robert Perlman who uh, lost his mom uh, last week. So uh, I. I'm sure I'm speaking for everybody here on this program uh, when I say uh, my sympathies to you, sir.
1: And thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here as always. See you all next time. Yes, we hope you will join us next time. And of course, you know you can always give us your input on the show with any questions or comments you have on any stories that we have covered or that you think we should cover. You can mail them to us by email at mailbag at com tweet it to us at talking space or post it on our wall on facebook facebook.com slash talking space once again of course as always we'd like to thank you for listening and also as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are